rot, 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 How can the company that brought us the ever-polluting beyond-the-legal-limit diesel come up with what? Now, this is their penance? Is this like Catholic school? You got caught, so you have to do seven Hail Marys and run a commercial on radio and TV to promote electric cars for a clean environment? Is that what they're up to here? The car doctor. Are they saying that we've we've agreed that the electric car right now in its present shape and form is the way to go? I haven't. I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. Welcome to the radio home of Ron and Anian, the car doctor. Since 1991, this is where car owners the world over turn to for their definitive opinion on automotive repair. If your mechanic's giving you a busy signal, pick up the phone and call in. The garage doors are open. But I am here to take your calls at 855-560-9900. And now, here's Ronnie. Hey, it's time to start your engines. Hello and welcome. Ron and Amy and the Car Doctor at your service at 855-560-9900. Here to take your calls and questions about all things automotive. And, eh, you know, you want to throw a little sprinkle in our life, too. We can kind of comment on that week to week as we uh, do each and every week here on the radio show. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's 24-7 phone number. If you call that number, 855-560-9900, and we're not on the air, as it sometimes happens, that works out that way. Uh, we're not everywhere all the time not like wolfman jack and you can call leave a message and executive producer chief cook bottle washer board operator floor sweeper and head custodian of the facility here at the car doctor corporate headquarters uh thomas ray will uh, return your call in timely and orderly fashion and get you in the queue for the next time i ain't falling for no banana in my tailpipe yeah, that would be it, and um, he would get you in the queue for the next live broadcast, and um, that would be about it. So uh, if you're new to the Car Doctor, we thank you for stopping by. If you're old to the Car Doctor, we thank you for sticking around. And if you're debating, well, we encourage you to stick around, and uh, we'll try to give you something to listen to in the next couple of hours. So more information, of course, at cardoctorshow.com, and uh, get out to the Car Doctor Facebook page. And don't forget, if you're out to Spreaker or the Car Doctor Facebook page where you're doing podcasting, if you're a podcaster, please click subscribe or favorite or whatever it is to uh, ensure that we keep coming to you and uh, keep driving our numbers and our numbers going up helps us stay here to give you the information you want on your automobile mr ray good afternoon sir as we are here saturday afternoon 2 to 4 p.m we're not on the network we're out of the network but everybody takes us at different times so greetings uh, greetings and i'd like to say that if you're on the fence about calling give us a call we're friendly we'll get we'll get you on with ron and quite frankly i get tired of listening to ron talk all the time so well, hey, you know listen and i'm going to make it easy on you today because at some point during the lull um, I put a piece of paper in front of you, and um, yes, a, I see that. I, I, it looks like your Christmas list. Well, no, actually, it's it's something more along the lines of um, I thought we would do a little uh, Carson McMahon, uh, the great Karnak uh, uh, improvisation. You're going to ask the question there, and um, uh, you're going to actually you, you can ask. That's the answers. I'm not sure if those are the answers or the questions. Well, hang hang on, I need to practice here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. You got that right. And um, you can any one of those topics are up for conversation this week. As um, I, I've decided, what I'm going to do each and every week is there's so much that goes on at the shop. I take notes, and I decided I'm going to summarize everything before the show weekly. And you know, you can just like go through the list, and whatever looks interesting, you can just ask me, and we'll talk about it. And maybe that's maybe that's a way to empty my head as I try to get ready for the next week to fill it back up again. So. But um, let's uh, let's do something like what we're supposed to do, and let's get over to Ken in Oregon, who's uh, here with an 05 Chrysler Town and Country, and some issues with brake light bulbs. Ken, welcome to the Car Doctor, sir. How can I help? Well, thank you. Yes, I'd like to uh, see if you can 
inform me as to what's going wrong with the rear tail light. Okay. For the uh, brake, turn signal, and uh, driving light. Okay. It, it, um, if, you know, for no reason, it'll just quit working. Get the the fast blink when you turn. Try and make a left turn. And I've checked everything, and it always comes down to the bulb. But when I pull the bulb out, the, both filaments are still connected. They're not broken. They're not burned. Nothing. If you, yet it won't work. If you put the bulb into another socket, does it light up? No. So the bulb is the bulb is bad. If you ohm across the filaments, if you ohm across the pin contacts, is is the filament bad? Does it does it show resistance? No. It, it it shows resistance, and I can hook it up to a 12-volt power supply, right. and it will work. Okay, so the bulb is good. Yes. All right, so the bulb but is... But it will not work. It will not work. <laughs> so so what are we missing at the socket, power or ground? Uh, it's It's got power. Um, I'm sure you're aware of Chrysler's uh, OEM sockets. Right, that just uh, sort of, they, they they screw in, so to speak. Um, yeah, so to speak, and and they're not very reliable after a certain period of time. So right. I switched out, bought another pair of taillights with uh, what they call upgraded sockets, like a normal socket. Right. And everything was fine for a couple of weeks, and then I started doing it again. Well, did you, when you installed the upgraded or the revised, you know, harness, a la the upgrade, mm -hmm. whatever it was, um, did you do any changes? Did you go back and look at the grounds themselves? See, I'm thinking you've got a ground issue. I really do. I mean, you can, listen, it's it's power ground or, or, or the component. Um, is it is it both rear taillights or just one side? No, just the left. Okay, so if you take that bulb out of the left and put it in the right, does it work? After it's um, uh, failed, no, it will not work even in the uh, right. So then the bulb is bad. Well, it depends. It's bad to the point where it won't work in the car, but hook it up to a 12-volt power supply, well, wait a and minute. everything works fine. Wait a minute. When the bulb fails on the left side, okay, mm -hmm. the right side bulb is still working. Correct. And you can take the bulb out of the left side, put it into the right side, and it doesn't work. Correct. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's illogical. That that's well. That's what I thought. Now the only thing uh, that you can tell, and my wife saw this, was one of the uh, conducting posts that you know holds uh, the filaments has turned uh, almost a dark royal blue black instead of being the nice nickel. And and that sounds like high current draw, like we're we're burning ourselves out. Right. Right. And, and, and once over the last uh, four months, it actually blew the fuse, a 15-amp fuse. For the left side only? For the left side only. It sounds like, it, it sounds like you've got two separate things going on here, Ken. It's, it's, uh -huh. It sounds like we've got a ground issue and as, possible, as a possible reason why it won't work. And then it sounds like there's a short somewhere before the bulb, causing the fuse to fail. What if? Yeah, we, what, but now, the, get, the, yeah, the fuse only failed once. Okay. Well, once is enough. Maybe, maybe. Well, and was was did the fuse fail with the old style socket or the new style socket? 
uh, the old one. Okay, so you, maybe it was the old style socket, and you've eliminated it out of the out of the vehicle, so you've eliminated that problem. What if we did this? What if we took, and here I am again with this 194 side marker bulb. What if we took a 194 side marker bulb socket, wired it into the feed for, I don't know, pick a circuit, the parking lights? This bulb that fails is a parking light bulb, correct? Yes, the parking brake, right. Uh, right. turn signal, right. all that good stuff. What if, we just, what if we just wire a 194 bulb in ahead of the socket? At the harness, you know, on the on the on the harness side of the of the harness, so to speak, away from the socket, just using the power and ground from that same harness. If when your mm -hmm. if when your bulb is out, that bulb is lit, then you know the problem is that way in the circuit. If that bulb is out while your bulb is out, you know it's missing power or ground. It, right. would, it would be too weird to have another socket issue. Yeah. Correct. All right. At least it would. At least it would give you a direction to go, and you could very easily extend that wire loop inside the vehicle. Oh yes. And yes. and you know now you could keep an eye on it. Now you've got something to watch from time to time in the rearview mirror. And don't make it a white bulb. Make it an amber bulb so it's not so bright. Correct. Correct. And just see what that does for you. But I'm th right. I'm thinking you've got a ground issue. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I'd love to look at a wiring diagram and just see, does the ground for the left side, is it the same ground in the vehicle as it is for the right side, for the rear? Um, what's Is, yeah, is, is I, there anything yeah. common? I don't think so. I think this is going to be a left side only issue. Does the fuse, Correct. Does, does the fuse for the left side feed only the left side? Correct. Just to the left. That, that amazed me. This is the first vehicle I've worked on that had... A separate left and right fuse. Right. Well, I've I've seen that, but I just wasn't sure if they were, you know, if this was like that in particular. And that's mm -hmm. getting to be more and more common. You know, as a matter of fact, I was working on a Honda yesterday that we might talk about a little bit this hour. If Tom actually asks me the question, that had uh -huh. a problem with the cooling fan, where there were three fuses involved in operating the cooling fan. And oh my. yeah, they they've gotten, and that was an 06 Honda CRV. They've gotten way more complicated um, as time has gone mm -hmm. by. So uh, you know, I take nothing for granted anymore. So let's try let's, let's try wiring a side marker bulb in. Let's let's see what that does, just for giggles. And if, and I guess we have to have the conversation. But I'm sure you sound like a pretty sharp guy. I'm, I'm sure you're using a good quality bulb, and they're not something gypsy off the off the, off of. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, Sylvania's. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Um, Good stuff. You know, we got to have. I just got to throw that into the mix so that we touch on it for everybody else's benefit. Right. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I started. Uh, I started working on vehicles when I was thirteen. Oh yeah, and I'm seventy-one now. You're an old guy like me. Um, <laughs> us, us old guys got to stick together. Well, I, I won't say your last name on air, but I loved your last name. I thought it was interesting. Um, appropriate, well, thank you. Appropriately, we're working on an electrical problem, so I'll let the listeners figure out what your last name was. But uh, I yeah, thought that was interesting, yeah. so um, I caught that right away. Um, let's do that. Good. Let's let's wire in a side marker, see what that does, and just for conversation, do you have a clamp-on ammeter? Uh, no, I don't. Um, do you have a? All I have is a VOM. If you have a VO, if you have a DVOM, and you can put it in series and just measure current current draw on the left rear versus the right rear. Just to see yeah, if there's any, just to see if there's anything excessive. I mean, listen, it may not, it may not show us anything wrong, but at least we'll know what's right. Right there, you go. You know, so it's it's just it's just understanding one more one more thing about the possibility of what could be wrong here. So, mm -hmm. all right, okay. sir, let's do that and let's talk again next week. How's about that? 
Okay, Ron. Thank you. You're very welcome, Ken. Appreciate you have a good rest of the weekend. You take good care. Yes, sir. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's cruising back right after this. Keep Ron's number handy, 855-560-9900, for when you really need advice on your car. Here's Ron. Let's get on over and talk to Tim in Florida, 96 Ford F-150. Tim, welcome to the car doctor. How can I help, sir? Hey, how's it going, Ron? Good, sir. What's going on? Um, I have a question for you. I have a 96 F-150 that um, I've got a really bad vibration in my gas pedal. Okay. Um, like when I come from a stop um, and they go in or I apply the gas, and then it goes away once I pass, like, 60 to 65 miles an hour. Um, and it's intermittent. It turns off at, like, 35 miles an hour, comes back at, like, 50. And, but it's, like, a really, really hard vibration. When, when you say vibration, Tim, um, like, running off, like running over a rough road kind of a feeling? Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. Like the bumps on the side of the road if you're running over those. Right, and you're not you don't feel it through the dashboard, you don't feel it through the floorboard, just specifically the gas pedal? It's just strictly the gas pedal. And then when I come off the gas, I can rest my foot without pressing the gas and I won't feel it. But then as soon as I put my foot to press the gas pedal down again, I feel it. I brought it to a couple of mechanic shops. Nobody can seem to figure it out. A couple of guys have told me what they thought it was. But then I've gone and fixed it myself, and uh, I, I can't. I I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, how long has this been going on? Since I bought the truck about six months ago, the guy said it had just. When I bought the truck, and he thought that it was a tire balance issue because he had put new tires on it. Um, when he noticed it start to happening, but I got I got the tire balance that I thought it was. And that didn't work. I'll tell you. The, I'll tell you the stupid thing. I think it might be, but I might be wrong. I, I would. I would want to know what the U joints are like in the drive shaft. That's what I checked. Also, yeah. We're um, just reading forums, but when I went under there to wiggle the drive shaft, the drive line, it had no play in it at all. Take it down. So I figured. Pull the pull the shaft down. Pull the shaft okay. down. Pull the shaft down and feel the joint. You know, if on the, the front one or the back one? Do you um, think? I think the rear one. I think okay. both joints on the rear one would want to be what I wiggle and jiggle because it's it's got to have good clean movement in all directions. And okay. and I you know I've seen this. It sounds crazy, but uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, to resurrect the imagery of it, Carpenter Bob's '84 E350 van, which only went to the junkyard a year and a half ago with 500,000 miles on it, hmm. all right? Wow. Uh, I remember back when it had when it was a child at 200,000 miles, and we had a similar problem where we had a vibration in the gas pedal, and we went round and round and round and pulled the drive shaft out, and sure enough, uh, well, I, and I kind of let Bob work on it for about a week because, you know, he, was, he wanted to play mechanic, and then finally I said, pull the drive <laughs> shaft out. Well, because, hey, listen, when I'm working on wood, he never tells me what to do right away. Kind of, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's an equal torture. That's what the love affair is. And right. I, I, I had him pull the drive shaft out, and the front joint 
just had a little bit of a click in it, and sure enough, it just it, it, it was catching it just right, creating a vibration through the drivetrain. But you know, it could be a front okay. joint, a rear joint. I've seen it. I've seen it both combinations. Obviously, we're going to talk about you know, is the exhaust hanging right, or the mounts correct? Uh, you know, anything that can cause or transmit a vibration from the engine to the gas pedal. But, uh, you know, that should be a cable linkage setup. So I'm thinking it's an oscillation through the floor pan. Is it strictly the gas pedal, or is it maybe also in the area surrounding the gas pedal? The only place I've ever felt it was the gas pedal. Well, then again, I guess and it's... And like it's, I said, as soon as I come off the accelerator... It goes away. It goes away. Yeah. Right it, away. It's, it's, it's kind of hard. You'd have to take your left foot and shove it under the gas pedal while you're holding down with the right to right. see is it. You know, it's, it's, and it gets a little awkward. You don't want to do that on any, on any crowded streets. But, yeah, I would be thinking something driveline. And then when, when you're looking at the shaft, make sure, you know, look at it. How rusty is it? You know, we're in the Northeast, you're in Florida, you know, we're in the North, you're in the South. Uh, we have this thing up here called snow and salt and corrosion, and then they throw all these chemicals What's down. That, Ron? I, don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah, see, I know. That's, you know, it's God bless you. And, you know, we, um, you know, we have these things where weights fall off of drive shafts over time. And, you know, you don't stop to think about it, and then you get under the truck and you go, why is there a fresh rust spot there? And the rest of the mm -hmm. shaft is a darker rust color because there used to be something welded to that, and it fell off. Aha! So, you know, getting the drive shaft checked for straight sometimes isn't the bad, worst idea either. Get it checked for straight and okay. balance. You know, if it's, um, it's, it's actually gotten to the point, and a lot of people don't understand me for this. A lot of people don't understand me for a lot of things, but I, I don't do U-joints in-house anymore. Not nearly as much as I used to. And it's not that we can't do them. I don't think we can do them right. Because I think if when you're doing universal joints, if you're not having the shaft checked for straight and balance, I think you're only doing half the job. I think it's like doing an oil change with just changing a filter. Um, you know, un un unless, you know, you had U-joints put in a month ago and, and one of the joints went bad and, you know, it was a warranty thing and you have to put a joint in it. That's one thing. But, you know, yeah, let's, let's think about the joint. I mean, let's look at all the mounts, engine and trans. But let's think real hard. Let's pull the drive shaft down, wiggle it, jiggle it, and then maybe send it out to get it straightened and balanced. And then you can um, at least write that off the list and call me back next week or whenever, and we'll kind of talk a little bit more. I appreciate it, Tim. You take good care and enjoy the sunshine of Florida. I'm Ron Anini in the Car Doctor. Good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya. When the family car needs some fixing, there's only two things that really matter, getting the right part and getting some good advice. It's a pretty safe bet that with over a million parts in stock, Pep Boys has the right part right now. The Pep Boys pros are extensively trained to find the right part for just about any car or truck. Better yet, these pros can also handle the entire installation or service needed. It's always good to have options and know the Pep Boys pros have it covered either way. Welcome back, Ron and Andy, the car doctor. That was a surprise ending. I realized I signed off like we were. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired this week, Tom. Yeah, you're yeah. something this week. Yeah. That's for sure. I, I, you know, it's well. Look at the list. <laughs> look at the list in front of you, right? I mean, it, you know, every one of those is a good story behind every one of those. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I'm 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 actually looking at the one that sounds like a like a 
old Commodore song, you know, three times a lady, three times a Honda. Tell me about that story. The three times a Honda story is a 2006 Honda CRV came into the shop this week, and it had three specific problems, but there was a background to the car. The car's been off the road for a year and a half. It was at a trans shop. They had taken the vehicle into a shop to have a transmission put in, and it was a used transmission out of a salvage vehicle. So it went back and forth. They kind of dickered over price a little bit, and they ended up settling on, okay, we'll do it for this much money, and they, they, they left it there. Well, a year and a half goes by. The car finally gets the transmission put in, but they drive it out, and now it's got a check engine light on, and the engine overheats. It's been in there so long, they can't remember, was the check engine light on before? Or and did it overheat before, or is any of this new or related to the you know the transmission fault, or is it because they put the transmission in the car? And let's face it, any shop that takes a year and a half to do a transmission, well, you know they're not exactly what I would call you know aces in terms of quality control and 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 overall you know ability. Um, there's there's some issues here. So, you know, was it a bolt a day, turn the wrench, have a cup of coffee, turn the wrench, have another cup of coffee? You know, how long could it possibly take? A year and a half? So it ended up on my doorstep. It had, it had two specific trouble codes. It had an P1157, which is an air fuel ratio sensor heater circuit high fault. And it had a P1107, or 1057 it was, intake manifold runner control circuit. I might have my codes backwards, but it was one was for an intake manifold runner control fault, and the other one's for an air fuel ratio sensor current draw problem. And you're thinking to yourself, gee, is there a connection here? And then last, the cooling fan didn't work. The engine cooling fan never came on and the car overheated. So now you're really thinking, okay, is there a connection? Let's see, I've got, I've got faults with two electrical items, three electrical items. Is there a common ground? Is there something that ties all three of these together? And it becomes three times the Honda. You've got to go through each circuit on an individual basis. I took the air-fuel ratio sensor fault first. I could see that the sensor appeared to be dead looking at it on a scan tool. I took the launch scan tool, put it up on a big screen, which I can cast it. You know, you can Chromecast the launch scan tools, which makes them so great. And I cast it up onto the big screen, and I can watch it from anywhere in the shop. I've got a big 36- or 48-inch TV floating around that does just that. And I could see that the sensor itself really wasn't doing anything. So I unscrewed it out of the pipe, and sure enough, there was physical damage to the sensor. Okay, sensor's bad. Boom, done. Let's put a sensor in it and move on. You know, didn't matter if I fixed every problem with the air fuel sensor. I knew that the sensor itself was bad. It had a crack in the tip, and it wasn't working. Let's go on to the next thing. Intake manifold runner control. When I first started the car, I heard a vacuum leak. That, and I, you know, you have to be careful with the cars today. The intake manifolds, just they sound like they've got vacuum leaks. There's always a high rush, rush of air, and it, it sounds like a high-pitched whistle, but it isn't necessarily always a leak. It's, it's the design and the curves and, and the turbulence that's going on. And it's, just, it's the sound of the engine. Well, I wasn't wrong because this one did have a vacuum leak, but only at idle. It wasn't affecting fuel trim on the road, but only at idle because the manifold had a vacuum line off that went to the intake manifold runner control, had a fish under the manifold, plugged it in. Didn't see a connection to any of this being related to the trans. I almost think it's how the car got dropped off, 205,000 miles. Um, you know, who was working on it prior to the trans failure? You don't know. You just don't know the history of it. Two down. The third one was kind of weird, <laughs> as if this wasn't weird enough already, right? So, you know, now I'm kind of getting away from the it's all related to one thing syndrome to everything is an individual problem, which is what it turned out to be. 
So the cooling fan wouldn't come on. Now, the way Honda does it is they put a switch in the bottom of the radiator. When the temperature in the radiator hits 199 degrees, it closes the ground leg to G201, which is the ground on the right side frame rail. It's a multiple gang ground. There's seven or eight different grounds for different circuits, which kind of when I looked at it, I said, oh, gee, I wonder if this is tied back to the air fuel sensor heater circuit and the intake manifold runner control problem. But it turns out, no. And that ground there, it, once it's completed with the closure of the switch, energizes the fan relay and turns on the fan. But it never happened. I mean, I saw the, I saw the scan tool temperature get up to 207, 208 degrees, and the fans never came on. So I said, well, let's just, you know, do I have a bad fan? Okay, I, I hooked up and set up a ground and a hot feed right to the fan itself, bypassed everything. Fan doesn't run. I grab the fan blade, and I hear a clunk, 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 clunk. There's a wobble. The fan's wobbling on its shaft. I said, gee, I wonder, you know, a bad spot on the armature. The car's been sitting for a year and a half, right? Rust spots. I mean, it had been sitting for a year and a half. I moved the fan just maybe an eighth of an inch rotation just to change the contact point of the brush against the commutator. I let the car warm up again. Well, actually, what I did was I took my power set up, power and ground, and I got the fan motor to run. Noisy as all get out, clop, 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 but it started to spin. It sounded like a World War One biplane. I was looking for Snoopy and the Red Baron, and sure enough, I hooked it back up. I let the car start to run and get warm, got to 207 degrees, no fan. All right, I need a fan motor. This is really weird, and then I thought about it, and as I was cleaning up last night, Carpenter Bob came in. This is the last job of the day. This car I was on this car all afternoon yesterday. Carpenter Bob came in, and I'm cleaning up, and I'm wiping up my tools, and he says, what are you doing? Because he's got this Honda in front of him running, and I've got this, my, my test headlight. I couldn't live without my test headlight, right? I've got my test headlight plugged into the fan connector where it gets energized by the relay. And I said, well, I said, this is kind of like back to the future. I said, when this thing hits 207 degrees or, or higher than 199, according to the wiring diagram, the headlight should light up. And then Bob said, well, where does it take the temperature reading? Because I was explaining to him how I was seeing 207, 208, and still no fan run. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, the switch is in the bottom of the radiator. The temperature sensor that I'm reading is located in the cylinder head at the top of the engine. It's two different areas. It's not taking it both from the radiator temp. I wonder if, and then I realized, Hondas are 212. When I do an idle learn on a Honda, I see temperatures up to 212 degrees before the fan comes on. I felt like Maxwell Smart. Missed it by that much, right? Needed five more degrees. So I waited till the car turned to five more degrees. I waited till it got up to 212. Fan switch read 199. So when the engine's at 212, the radiator's at 199. That's the temperature differential. Temperature differential. The headlight came on. Bob goes, why is the headlight on? Well, that's because the fan's bad. And he just looked at me, and I explained the whole thing to him. So sometimes you got to go the really the long way around the barn, but the point becomes test everything. I tested everything in that fan circuit. I knew how everything worked when I was done. I tested every component. Monday it's getting a fan, and the car will be done. Three problems, none of them related. The only common denominator that I can figure is some of it had may have something to do with the fact that the car sat for a year and a half, but you know there's no way I can control that. Fix the problems in front of you. If you've, if you've ever wondered, is it this part or that part, take the part out of the car. Wire it up on the bench. Treat it like a standalone device. How would you test it if you didn't have the car in front of me? 
That's how I approach everything, and that's how you've got to approach it. We were talking to Ken before about the taillight bulbs in his Chrysler. Take those bulbs out. Put them in something else. Wire them up. Test it. That's how you've got to approach it. But that's the that's the Honda three-time story. 855-560-9900. The Car Doctor's coming back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and Ian, the Car Doctor. And, and the whole point of that Honda story was, as I was telling Tom during the break, is that, you know, the load of the circuit, it was a 20-amp fuse circuit that ran the electric fan on the Honda. 20-amp fuse generally is a 6 to 7-amp load. It's usually three times the circuit load. So a 6, 7-amp load, that's about a headlight bulb, an old-school round-style, you know, headlight bulb. And that's why I use that headlight bulb for everything. That's my electrical test mule. And um, as soon as the light came on, boom. You know what? Let's put a fan in it. And I only did that. I knew the fan was bad anyway, but I did that because I had, now I was able to, I could verify the switch work, the relay work, the wiring in between work. Car sat for a year and a half. How else? You got, you got to test everything. How do you, you know? So it drove Bob crazy, though, because the headlight came on. He says, what the heck does that mean? That means the car's overheating. Let's go over to uh, Bob, no relation, in Minnesota, 12 Chevy Impala. Hey, Bob, welcome to the car doctor. How can I help? Hi. Yes, sir. I have a Chevy Impala, and when I step on the brakes, it shakes. Okay. Um, high and speed, I have highway speed? pads and rotors put on, and it still shakes, so I think it might be the calipers. Well, let's talk about this a second. I'm going to change them myself. Yeah, well, let's hang on a second now. Um, uh, let's talk about this. It shakes at what speeds, Bob? Well, it'll shake a little bit around 50, 55, right okay. around in there. So highway it's, speed. Yeah, it's highway speed. Only only when you're stepping on the brake. Uh, sometimes it'll do a little without stepping on the brake, ever so slightly. Okay. But it doesn't do it constantly. All right. Well, vibration without stepping on the brake is not going to be brake-related. I've never seen that. And the laws of physics, would you'd have to explain that to me because they kind of defies them. Um, uh-huh. You know, when we get a pulse... Uh, without vehicle brake application like that, you're, you're describing to me we're, we're usually looking at a tire wheel balance issue, something driveline related, something along those lines. So, you know, in order to diagnose and repair this properly, you've got to fix the non-brake application vibration first because otherwise, how would you know? You know, if, yeah. if, if, if the car's shaking at 55 without stepping on the brake and you step on the brake and you think, well, it's related to the brake. No, it's not. It was vibrating before you started. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so you've got to look at that. Um, there are a couple of bulletins, if I recall correctly, on older Impalas that talked about harmonics and problems with steering racks and, and vibrational shake, uh, things like that. But I don't believe it applies to the 12s. This was back in the 6s and the 7s the uh, older ones, and I think what you're going to find first step is I would either look at tire condition, tire quality, and just make sure that all four tires have a real good balance on them. For that matter, if, if you don't have access to a wheel balancer, mark the tires on the inside, you know, left front, right front, and so on. Move them around the car. Does moving the tires change how the vibration occurs? And if it does, then at least you know you're, you, you're, you're, you're moving the problem, but you know what the problem is in terms of what to attack. Generally, oh, okay. generally, calipers will be the issue that causes the brake rotor to warp, which would cause the pulse, but only when you step on the brake. All right, you know the. Yeah, cal- the- I get a good shaking when I step on it. Uh, well, but so is- I'm uh, thinking about trying the calipers too, 
And I would like to know when you bleed the calipers, can I just use the two-man bleeding uh, system, or do I need a computer to bleed them? Well, if you don't, depending upon how much fluid you use here, let's let's back up. How many miles are on the car? Oh, about 140,000. Okay. So at 140,000 miles, have you ever changed brake fluid before? No. Uh-uh. All right. So, so we're going to go through the process of replacing calipers and only bleed part of the system that doesn't make sense right i mean right. doesn't it don't you really want to you know you, you i agree with putting calipers on if they're this age um and if they're of poor condition so you know it becomes pads rotors calipers but then you need to do a bleed and a flush and you know in order to bleed the abs controller on that car you will need a scan tool it's got to activate oh, the pistons okay. there is a specific there is a specific procedure so, you know, maybe it's you can hang calipers, bleed it just to get a pedal as best you can, and get it down to your local mechanic and ask him, hey, can you flush the system for me from here? Oh, um, okay. You know, I mean, see if he'll do that. See if he'll want to do part of the work. If not, you know, because there's a liability factor here. He's going to be counting on your work to be done right. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it won't be, but I, you know, I would be hesitant as a, as a technician to step into the middle of it. But, you know, at that point now, yeah, you really should bleed and flush the brake fluid. You know, the industry says, and, and common sense dictates, every two to three years at a, at a, at a minimum. And, you know, if it's been 140,000 miles in you know, 12, 18, where are we, six, seven years? Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of Minnesota winters and a lot of condensation uh, uh, going on there. So I would, um, by all means, you know, get the fluid flushed and clean. And don't forget about the rear brakes either. Uh, right. You know, it's it's. Let's look at the brake system as a whole, only because if the front rotors did have a warp issue or a pulse or a shake, you know, if the front calipers are overworked because the rears aren't doing anything, then mm-hmm. six six months from now you'll be calling me again, going, "Hey, I got my vibration back." So, uh, yeah. you know, that's uh, that's really the best way to do it. Bob, I got to run. I'm up against the clock. If you got any other questions, give us a shout next week and let us know how things turn out. I'm Ron and the Car Doctor. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Ron and the Car Doctor. A couple of quick things here at the end of the hour. Uh, car care tips for Halloween driving. This one's out of the Car Care Council. The folks over at the Car Care Council remind us with Halloween's fast approaching, motorists drive slowly through neighborhoods. Be sure, you know, extra careful Halloween is this week. You want to be careful with those little ghouls and goblins walking around the streets and make sure your vehicle's lights and wipers are working properly. You know, it might be bad weather in parts of the country this coming week. So, uh, you know, just maybe clean the glass. You know, dirty windshields are not a great thing at Halloween because uh, they may look spooky, but you need to be able to see kids crossing the street. And um, if the weather turns, worn-out wiper blades or cracked wiper blades, well, they're going to be a problem for visibility. So stop to think about that. And, you know, just remember, if you're looking for more information about taking care of your vehicle, it's out on the web at um, carcare.org. So. Uh, get out there and do that. This uh, Mitchell track, I wanted to do a Mitchell sure track fix. It was kind of interesting, a 2002 Suzuki Esteem. You know, you think Suzuki, you think, oh, gosh, I don't want to work on that. I can't get parts. Sometimes it's simple, and this one comes to us from the folks over at Mitchell. The customer's concern was confirm the customer concern. Right, what I always tell you, make sure the problem really exists. And they noted the instrument cluster temperature gauge read in the over-temperature range. They checked the coolant level and condition. There were no concerns. They inspected the cooling system components. It had circulation. The radiator was working. And 
all in the end, when they felt the upper radiator hose, the upper radiator hose was warm to the touch, not scalding hot. Turns out the engine coolant temperature switch was actually bad, and it was giving an erroneous reading to the gauge, making the car appear to be overheating, even when it's not. Things like this are out there from Mitchell One. More information at MitchellOne.com. I'm Ron Anani and the Car Doctor, reminding you, good mechanics aren't expensive. They're priceless. See ya.